Hello, and welcome back to the Hi-Ho Podcast. My name's Victoria Sundin. And I'm David Westbrook. And this is Have You Heard Of. It's been a hot minute. We're mm-hmm. sorry it's been so long. Uh, my computer broke. <laughs> um, pretty much. Uh, and so I uh, basically didn't have it for a few days and had to completely reinstall the operating system but we're good now we're here we're here so thank you for your patience welcome back um i know we said every other week but it seemed a little dramatic for us to not say anything or do anything um for more than two weeks so welcome back to have you heard of the high hope podcast yeah, it's definitely been a hot minute since we did this. Um, I'm glad we're getting back into the swing of it, though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't foresee any other problems arising, but yes. So, welcome back. This week, we're going to talk about um, someone whose last name you may have heard of, but you don't know much about the guy himself. So, David, have you heard of Samuel Sebastian Wesley? I have indeed heard of Samuel Sebastian Wesley. Um, I only know him because I've sang a single anthem that he did in, and ironically, the Catholic Church. Right. Okay, so, yes, that that is ironic, but it's not too ironic. ironic. Well, because <laughs> I, I saw the last name was Wesley, and I, like, I was joking myself, I was like, ha ha ha, what is this, is like, you know, the other Wesley, like, John and Charles's brother, and then the church director's like, "Yeah, Samuel Sebastian Wesley, interesting guy, the great grand, the grandson of um, one of the Wesleys of like the Methodism." And I was like, "What? The what? What? what, what? <laughs> God, first we're doing that. Next thing you know, we're going to be singing Ein Festebork. Dang, you Dang. really do the irony." The Catholics are quaking. So are the Protestants. <laughs> so, um, if you're from our neck of the woods, you're most likely Methodist. Um, so, <laughs> uh, David and I are pretty familiar with the Methodist Church. Um, I grew up Methodist, at least. I don't know much about too. it. There you go. Um, and we both sang in a Methodist church in undergrad, um, you know, for that extra money. Um we have a wonderful choir director who actually suggested that we talked about Samuel Sebastian Wesley, so this is for him, if you're listening. Shout out to you. You know who you are. You're probably not listening, but if you <laughs> we'll are. Make, we'll, we'll, we'll kindly encourage you to listen. Yeah, we will. Consider ready yourself for more text kindly, at 1 a.m. <laughs> consider yourself kindly encouraged. All right, so let's get into this guy. Um, there's not much about him, so... Better, okay. better now than never. Anyway, um, Samuel Sebastian Wesley was born on August 14th in 1810 in London, England. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty famous city. Lots of, lots of stuff going on there. You might have heard of London. Might have. It's kind of obscure, actually. Um, Can't blame a man. So, uh, Samuel Sebastian Wesley was the eldest child of composer Samuel Wesley. Um, mm-hmm. And his mother was uh, the Wesley's domestic servant at the time. Her name was Sarah Souter. And um, 
she and Samuel Wesley had an affair together, which caused um, Samuel to divorce from his wife, Charlotte, because of this affair. Right? Pretty scandalous. Mm. Um, yeah. So Samuel Sebastian is the eldest of four children that um, Samuel and Sarah had together. And he's the grandson of Methodist leader and prolific hymn writer Charles Wesley. I'm glad. I'm glad to know that Charles Wesley had an illegitimate grandson. The best part is, is that John Wesley has an illegitimate great nephew. <laughs> it just feels. It feels ironic that you know these like. Massive holy men that founded, you know, giant religious movements, you know. They're just people with family problems like everyone else. You know, they walk like everyone else, one so foot at true. a time. Um, so, um, if you don't know, Charles and John Wesley were the, like, founders of the Methodist movement. Um, they were... English Protestant um, ministers. Um, they came from a very religious family, um, very Christian family. They came to the United States, and John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed for one night, and he all of a sudden invented Methodism. <laughs> one night and one night only. <laughs> um, so, also... Um, Samuel Sebastian Wesley's middle name is derived from his father's lifelong admiration of J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, Samuel nice. Sebastian Wesley. Nice. You know, it all makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, be, like if, be like if my child was named, like, Rutherford Vaughn Westbrook after Ludwig von Beethoven, you know? Right. <laughs> um... So, S.S. Wesley spent his childhood singing in the choir of the Chapel Royale, uh, which is like the chapel for the royal family mm-hmm. in London. Um, yes. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, he is a direct descendant of the Wesleys, who were a um, Christian and spiritual family. Um, and so Samuel Sebastian grew up in that environment as well. And um, he's also the direct descendant of prolific hymn writers such as Charles Wesley who wrote hymns that we all know and love such as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. By the way, he wrote the text for these hymns, not the melody. It's very different. Yes, Yes, the man wrote like 6,000 hymns and wrote like seven songs. You gotta prioritize. Hey, he he prioritized alright. Yeah, you know, we only care about two melodies in the Methodist Church, and one of them's Heiferdahl. I do love me Heiferdahl. I hate Heiferdahl. It's so much fun. It's not. I hate it. It's so... Mm. Heiferdahl, if you don't know, that's what Love Divine All Loves Excelling is sung to. It's Love Divine All Loves Excelling. Na, 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 na. That's Heiferdahl. Also, um, although his grandfather was a founder of the Methodist Church, Samuel Sebastian wrote exclusively for the Church of England. Mm. Sad. <laughs> this poor man, he's just confused. Mm-hmm. Well, you Methodism, I think at the time, was strictly like an American thing. 
Because that was founded, like, in the United States and became a denomination in the United States, but I don't think it was so popular in, like, the UK. So, you know, he grew, up, he grew up Anglican, so he wrote um, music for the Anglican Church. I really, now that I'm thinking about it, I really don't know much about the, like, actual history in and of itself of Methodism. Well, we can talk about that a little bit in um, our next episode. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, Spicy. There's some foreshadowing right there. Um, But anyway, basically he was destined for greatness in the world of music and hymn writing. In his adulthood, he embarked on a career as a musician, officially, and was appointed as the organist at the Hereford Cathedral in 1832 at the age of 22. Mm-hmm. And while he was there, he met his future wife, Mary Ann Merriweather, who was the sister of the cathedral's dean. They got mm-hmm. married, and they had a total of six children together. Are there Wesleys still alive? Probably. That'd be weird. Yeah. Did you know that John Tyler's grandchildren is still alive, technically? The pre- what? Yeah, the president. The president? Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's like a long time ago. Anyway, so interestingly enough, S.S. Wesley, or Samuel Sebastian Wesley, I like to call him S.S. for short, um, like his father, was a Freemason. Um, I still don't know exactly what Freemasonry is. The way I understand it, it's like an old version of being a frat brother. Um, kind of. It's a secret fraternity of men. So what I said, yeah. Yeah, pretty, I mean, it's pretty much just like a frat. Um, except, unlike... Except unlike unlike frats, um, unlike Freemasonry, frats don't really have like conspiracy theories around them. Probably one guy. Yeah, um, Mozart was a Freemason. That's all I know. A um, lot of really famous people have been Freemasons. Yes, um, George Washington but... was a Freemason. There you go. See, we are founded on the backbone of Freemasonry. That's a conspiracy theory right there. That's what conspiracy theory sounds like. Um, anyway, he was initiated in the uh, Palladian Lodge number 120 in Hereford um, in 1833. Congratulations Fun fact. for him. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, S.S. Wesley, frat bro. Anyway. Um, in 1836, he moved to the Cathedral Church of St. Peter in Exeter, uh, which is a city in southwest England. And um, I couldn't find much information on this, but supposedly um, one of his daughters passed away at a young age, and um, she was buried in Exeter. So throughout his adulthood, um, he held a lot of different church positions and appointments. Um, He worked at the Leeds Parish Church in 1842, and then eventually moved to the Winchester Cathedral in 1849, And the final place that he worked at until his death in 1876 was at the Winchester College and Gloucester Cathedral, um, which he started working at in 1865. Um, And in 1849, he also published a written piece titled A Few Words on Cathedral Music and the Musical System of the Church with a Plan of Reform. A few words? A few words. New York Times bestseller. 
Doesn't sound like it's going to be a few words. <laughs> um, he received both his Bachelor of Music and Doctor of Music degrees in 1839 from Oxford University. So if you ever wondered if you could get your bachelor's and your doctor at the same time, ask Samuel Sebastian Wesley. It was a different time back then, you know. It sure was. Didn't have he... indoor running water or electricity <laughs> or cars. But you could get two degrees at the same time. You, you could get a bachelor's <laughs> and a doctorate at the same time. <laughs> um... He became a professor of organ at the Royal Academy of Music in 1850. Oh, wow. And he passed away of old age on April 19th, 1876, at the age of 65, in his home in Gloucester. And Mm -hmm. he is buried next to his daughter in um, St. Bartholomew's Cemetery in Exeter. And there are memorial tablets of him in Exeter Cathedral and Winchester Cathedral. And his memorial at Gloucester Cathedral is in stained glass. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Look at him go. Yeah. Uh, he is now remembered in England as one of the country's leading organists and choir masters. Um, and his hymns and anthems are still largely popular um, and used by the Church of England. Mm-hmm. So he did write... Lots of hymns and anthems. Basically, he only wrote music for the church and some organ music. So that's mainly what he focused on. His better known anthems include Thou Wilt Keep Him in Perfect Peace and Wash Me Throughly. And Mm -hmm. in addition to these, he also composed a number of verse anthems. Mm -hmm. And those are anthems that alternate between sections for solo voice and the full choir. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, it's supposed to um, imitate, like, call and response between the congregation and yeah. um, the church. His famous verse anthems include Blessed Be the God and Father and the Wilderness and Ascribe Unto the Lord. His popular short anthem, Lead Me, Lord, is an excerpt of one of his other anthems, which is Praise the Lord, O My Soul. Mm-hmm. And he also composed a service in E. And a short full service in F, which those are like the Church of England's versions of masses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also composed several pieces for solo organ that are still used as concert repertoire to this day. He wrote lots of hymn tunes, but of all the ones that he wrote, his best known um, hymn tunes are Aurelia and Hereford. And um, so now here's some fun facts about Samuel Sebastian Wesley. One notable feature of his career is his aversion to equal temperament tuning. Um, Even long after this tuning method had been mostly accepted um, by England and North America. So, David, I know you play piano. So, do you want to explain equal temperament tuning to the class? Uh, Yeah, sure. So, there's an inherent problem with tuning keyboard instruments, right? The way that um, the musical scale works, you can't properly tune a piano and have it be perfectly in key. If you do that, it can only be in key with itself for one key, right? So within with what's called just intonation, if you're playing in the key of C, 
you can play in the key of C major and relative keys to C major, but if you try and play in like C sharp major, it sounds really bad. Um, and it sounds really out of tune because the keys aren't properly tuned to give it an equal temperament, which is where we get equal temperament from. Um, the formula, if anyone was curious as to how you tune a piano, is each note is equal to the 12th root of 2 up one frequency. And if you do that all the way up and go from like C to C, at the end of that, you're going to reach the 12th root of 2 to the 12, which is then equal to 1, which is an octave. We love some ugly math. Yes. And um, just intonation goes with like the harmonic series. So mm-hmm. when you play a key, there are when you play a note, there are um, certain intervals that will play above mm-hmm. that note. Um up to infinity and so it goes according to that but um equal temperament tuning doesn't go according to the harmonic series Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah and so so it's really only a problem that keyboardists have to deal with um strings and winds and stuff like that um don't have to deal with that because you can manipulate the length of the string as you're playing it right Pianists don't have that luxury. There's 88 keys on the piano. Almost every single one of those keys has two or three strings attached to it. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's, you know, hundreds of strings in a piano. Um, Yeah. And so instead, like, I think the fifth is slightly flat. Um, The fourth is a little bit sharp from perfect... But it's also relatively in tune that our ears don't hear it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can actually hear it if you play a chord and you hear a little bit of beating that comes with like like that. Um, That is them being ever so slightly out of tune with each other. I can talk for hours about tuning pianos. (laughs) It's so crazy how people do it. All of this is to say that um, the piano is technically out of tune. And, um, Samuel Sebastian Wesley didn't like that. He was for just intonation, um, to a fault, apparently. This, uh, disdain for equal temperament tuning didn't stop him from substantial use of chromaticism in several of his published compositions. And, um... Here's another fun fact. While at Winchester Cathedral, Wesley was largely responsible for the cathedral's acquisition of a Father Willis organ in 1854. Father Willis at the time was a notable English organ builder. Um, He was very successful, very famous for building organs in England. And he built an organ that was displayed at the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was like an industrial world fair. Um, held in England. And so this landed him an opportunity to um, build a 100-stop organ for St. George's Hall in Liverpool, which he built in 1855, directly overseen by Samuel Sebastian Wesley, um, because he's the one who got the organ for his cathedral, and so he technically gave the opportunity to uh, Father Willis. 
He, uh, Samuel Sebastian Wesley was the main overseer of this project, and because of this, the organ was impaired for some years by Wesley's insistent that it not be tuned to equal temperament. <laughs> so he was a stubborn, stubborn man. You hate the steamroller of change. <laughs> Um, and Wesley and Father Willis co-invented the concave and radiating organ pedal board, which is still in standard use today. Wow, look mm-hmm. at this thing go. Yeah, so that is the life of Samuel Sebastian Wesley. Awesome. Okay, so... Now that we've talked about his life, we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about his music, but also hymnody as a whole. Um, this is a subject that Victoria and I love to talk about, just in general, <laughs> um, because it's a really fascinating subject. One of the big things to remember whenever you're thinking about hymns is that the person that wrote the lyrics is the usually the famous one that you think of, not the person that wrote the melody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, the famous Isaac Watts hymn, um, the music was not written by Isaac Watts. Somebody else set that hymn that Isaac Watts had written to music, and that just became the one that we think of today. Um, so there is the separation of the text from the music. However, it's very important to remember that the music is usually written for a certain text. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can think about them separately and together at the same time. Right, so hymns are written... Um in different meters they're called hymn meters and so the text itself is it's like a poem and so depending on how many syllables there are per line of each stanza that'll determine the meter of the poem so Mm -hmm. um the most common hymn meter is called common meter appropriately Mm so and that The first line is eight syllables, and then the second line is um, six syllables, and then eight, and then six. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And there's, like, long meter, which is eight, 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 and then short meter, which is six, six, eight, six. And there are different variations of meters. There's a regular meter, and then there's just unmetered hymns, depending Mm -hmm. on how modern they are. Um Yes, so hymns did start out written, um, the text and the music were written separately and then joined together. As time passed, especially in the United States with, like, the, um, revivalist movement of the United States, that's when we first started seeing hymns written with the music. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of, like, those, like, southern church revivalist hymns have, like, specific tunes sung to the um, text because they were composed together. You can swap um, hymn tunes with hymns if the meters match. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, (laughs) this is not a hymn, a hymn, um, (laughs) hymn related, but so, like, for example, the melody for Amazing Grace can be sung 
with the opening theme song for Pokemon. Yes. Because they're in the same meter. That would be an example of um, a hymn being sung to multiple meters. Or no, um, a hymn being sung to multiple tunes. My bad. Yes. Um, You can do it. You can. Um, We're not saying that you should. But you can. The only example I can think of right now is like um, "Soldiers of Christ Arise" and "Maker in Whom We Live" are written mm-hmm. to this, are can be sung to the same tune. Mm-hmm. The, Maker in whom we live. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of there's a lot of things like that, um, and we could sit here and figure out examples on all, all night long. Um, I do want to. Th- say something about hymns themselves and their purpose in the church. So the purpose of a hymn is to get the congregation to sing the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so with that being with that in mind, hymns have to be easy to sing. The melody has to be relatively easy to sing as well. Um, the range can be too wide because, you know, obviously people can't sing notes above the staff or like into ledger lines and so the rule of thumb is about an octave in width and mm-hmm. um i heard this it's like the rule of thumb is to never write any hymns where like the highest note is above an e um on the treble clef so like the last space of the treble clef staff um that e like you can't go above that because e is usually like the highest note that normal people can sing mm-hmm. so yeah yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting um, the idea of where hymns play in the role of the church and in congregational worship in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I wish yeah. that I wish that hymns were more focused on um, sometimes within the church, right? Um, I wish that people would sing. Yeah, the the problem that is presented with hymnals and hymns um, is that a lot of people are not focusing so much on the words because they want to sing the melody right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why sometimes it can be helpful to have those screens, like in church, with just the words on them. So you yeah. just kind of learn the melody over time, but you're really paying attention. You're reading the words on the screen. So you're paying more attention to the words that you're singing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a big problem too, is just musical literacy in Mm -hmm. general. Yeah. Um, I do know that like the Catholic hymnal for, I think the Catholic hymnal, the gather, um, I believe the congregational version of it only has like one line, right? So it's not harmonized. Okay. Nice. Um, which I think is actually beneficial for congregations, right? Um, I think it's great if the choir wants to sing, like, the full-blown harmonies. But I've always felt, like, I personally feel really weird if I'm in a church singing, mm-hmm. like, a hymn, and I sing the harmony, and no one else in the congregation is singing harmony. Yes, my dad does that. Because then you just stick out, and everyone's like, what are you doing? Yep. And then you get self-conscious, and then you don't want to sing anymore. Yep, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just so, like yeah. animals. So, with all that being said, um, oh, before I before we move on, uh-huh. David did mention that um, 
hymn writers are usually the ones that get more credit than the actual melody writers, but yes. there are several famous composers who um, have written famous hymn melodies, such mm-hmm. as J.S. Bach. Um, yes. He wrote a lot of chorales that were later um, translated into the hymnal. He also rewrote a lot of existing hymn melodies that were like of the um, Protestant Reformation, such as A Mighty Fortress is Our God and um, Heiferdahl, for example, is a melody we mentioned earlier. He wrote them in standard, like 4-4 four, four meter in standard notation. And he also wrote parts for the melodies because those were originally very syncopated rhythms um, mm-hmm. sung to be more, like, folksy and less, you know, on the beat. And so Bach standardized those and created those for the hymnal. And mm-hmm. Ray Fawn Williams wrote a lot of hymn tunes, such as All Creatures of Our God and King, which is one of my personal favorites. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, Martin Luther is another one that, that wrote a lot of his own uh, melodies for his hymn. He wrote both the melodies and the texts. Yes. Um, so, a real Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Also, there are some ancient chants that are featured in the hymnal. Um, two that I can think of right now are Of the Father's Love Begotten and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Yeah, another old hymn that I can think of um, is there's one, it's one of my favorite hymns of all time. Um, it's called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. The melody and the tune is from like the 17th century, I want to say. But the actual text itself dates all the way back to like the 200s in the Orthodox Church, um, if I remember correctly. That's old. She old, yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and let's listen to a few things. Um, So this first thing we're going to listen to isn't necessarily a hymn in the sense of how we think about them. This is the Lead Me Lord um, by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a short anthem. It's a short anthem. Yeah. Um, It's kind of like, I think you call it a verse anthem or verse hymn. Yeah, verse anthem. Yeah, verse anthem. It's pretty much just a verse anthem, also. Um, Again, that's um, those uh, anthems that alternate between a soloist or a solo group and the choir. Yes, but it is a banger. Let's listen to her. Listen to her. Um, And we are using strings in this recording instead of voices because the strings sound better. Mm -hmm. Because welcome to our lives. (laughs) Alrighty, let's give it a listen. Yeah. Thank you. 
the text here for this uh, for this hymn, just read it super fast. Um, it's not that long. So the text is, Lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness. Make thy way plain before thy face. For it is thou, Lord, thou, Lord only, that makest me dwell in safety. Aw. It's a nice text. Yeah, nice. Uh-huh. I believe that Wesley wrote the text and the hymn, the tune. Wow, a man before his time. The text is based off of um, one of the psalms. Nice. Nice. Oh, that's something, um, yeah, psalms are usually uh, written to music, so they're also the source of a lot of hymn texts. The psalms were the original hymns. That is true. Um, But yeah, you definitely hear, like, very simple harmonies, nothing too crazy going on. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned... This does need to be singable for the congregation or like something that they can sit and meditate on. At That's what anthems were mostly for is for like it's the musical offering to God and also a chance for the congregation to meditate on the words that are being sung. So harmony is very simple. Um, not that much counterpoint going on. Like mm-hmm. they're moving along with the beat like there's a chord change pretty much every beat. Um, mm-hmm. There not... are definitely, there is definitely some usage of like passing tones and leading tone usages. Um, there are a couple of really funky chords in this thing. There are. Um, yeah, like in the beginning, um, you get that um, minor second dissonance. Yeah, and it adds a lot onto it. Um, and there is, I, since this is an anthem, it would be less designed for, like, congregational singing, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. the congregation was singing with, they would probably just sing the melody for this one. Um, yes. And the melody wasn't complicated at all, at all especially in the first no. stanza. It's, you know, like, mostly, like, half notes, some quarter notes, mm-hmm. and whole notes, you know? And part of the part of the usefulness of those verse anthems, right, is that the altos would sing the full melody, right, first, and then the choir would come in with the harmonization of that. Yeah, give so, altos the shining moment. Mm-hmm. So the congregation would hear what the next part sounds like first before they sung it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is very helpful. It is very helpful. Yes. Though I do think it's interesting because this would have been in a time where the congregational singing would have been much more encouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in theory. Yes. So the history of the church was built on the ideas that, like, only men could sing, mm-hmm. only um, certified monks or clergymen could sing in the Catholic church. Like, there were cantors who would hired specifically to sing during the service and like yes. congregational cha- um, singing wasn't encouraged. Uh, obviously that's changed over time with contemporary Christian music. <laughs> Very much so. Mm-hmm. But um, all in all, this is a good example of something that is pleasant to the ear, something that is um, good for a church setting, good for like a meditational setting, and good for the congregation to just um, listen to the words that were being sung. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Alrighty, we want to move on to the next one? 
Yeah, let's listen to the next one. So this next hymn that we're going to listen to is another one with um, the tune by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. The title, so the tune is titled um, Ellingham. Um, Tunes, by the way, are usually, the tune's name and the hymn that it's famous for are usually not synonymous. Like, the tune for Amazing Grace, for example, is not titled Amazing Grace. You know, um, it has a different name. Don't ask me what that name is. <laughs> but yes, so this tune is titled Ellingham, um, and this is also by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. Alright, let's give her a listen. Let's give her a listen. I don't know if you've noticed, but the um, the melody of this one and the Lead Me Lord are pretty similar in the beginning, where it just it starts on the third and it descends down to the root of the chord. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's another thing. Um, the melody is very scalar, which means yes. it usually goes up a scale. There's not a lot of crazy leaps. There may be a leap of like a third, probably, um, mm-hmm. at like the most like an uh a fifth but that's still pretty easy on the ear to like um because you can kind of predict where the melody's gonna go if it's yes. simple enough and so um it's still very singable but it's easy to learn and um easy for the audience to follow not the audience oh my gosh the congregation <laughs> <laughs> and it's and that voicing especially so they have the root and the fifth in the basses and the tenors, and then the soprano and alto have the root and the third, right, with the soprano singing the third. That voicing is really common for hymns. Um, <clears throat> um, it's good spacing between the different voices, right, because you have the fifth between the tenors and the basses, the uh, fourth between the tenors and the altos, and then the third between the altos and the sopranos. Right, so it doesn't sound super muddy. Um, And just like in Baroque Counterpoint, right, you do want to try and limit the number of, like, parallel thirds that you have. One of the downsides to the typical way that hymns are written is that the inner two voices usually have incredibly boring parts. Yes, I was about to say, like, with... um traditional baroque uh counterpoint and part writing soprano and bass are usually the ones that get the most priority alto usually ends up singing the same note over and over and then tenor just gets like those weird notes that were left behind in the chord that just yeah that are just needed the um to actually complete the chord yeah 
Yeah, yeah, just to fill in whatever's left. Um, um, the text for this hymn, by the way, so this is one of those tunes where there's probably a bunch of different hymns that are set to this hymn tune. The main hymn that they have on hymnary.org um, says, I'm just going to read the first verse, there's six verses to this hymn. Um, the first verse is, Thy kingdom come, O Father, hear our prayer. Shine through the clouds that darken everywhere. Thou only light, thou only life and joy. Show us the hope that nothing can destroy. Amen. And we did have we did have that nice plagal cadence at the end. Um, yes, it's literally just a four to one cadence. It's called the plagal cadence because it sounds like amen, you know. Mm-hmm. We also, if you call it the amen cadence or the church cadence, anyone will know what you're talking about if if they know what the different cadences names are. Right. So this is another um, another sweet little hymn. Um, obviously, this would be like a. Um, post-prayer hymn before the anthem um, and communion. So, Or no, not the communion, the offertory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. I like it. It's very, it's very meditative in its progression. It's not super pretentious or anything like that. Um, it flows well. Yeah. Right. So what next do we have in store? And so one more hymn. So this is not a Samuel Sebastian Wesley hymn. Um, this hymn's title, the so the so the hymn's title is from all that dwell below the skies. It's an Isaac Watts hymn. Mm-hmm. The music is by a man named John Hatton. Um, the melody is called Duke Street. Um, this is a long meter hymn, right? So this is going to be 8888. Yep. Um, and I wanted to listen to this one to see a difference in the way that Samuel Sebastian Wesley might have written a hymn or a hymn tune versus the way that somebody else would. So I just chose an Isaac Watts hymn, and I like the way that this one sounds. Yeah. So we went with this one. So, a little bit about Isaac Watts. Um, he was born, like, almost 200 years before Samuel Sebastian Wesley was. Mm-hmm. Um, he's considered to be the godfather of English hymnody. Um, very influential very influential hymn writer. He wrote a lot of famous hymns, such as Joy to the World. Mm-hmm. Um, not the tech, not the, the music, I mean, not the music, obviously. He just wrote the text. Um, Handel wrote the music for Joy to the World. Uh, mm-hmm. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so he's just a very um, influential English minister and hymn writer. And so mm-hmm. I think when Samuel Sebastian Wesley was writing his hymns, like that was the standard pretty much mm-hmm. of hymn writing. Um, obviously, like John and Charles Wesley, you know, their hymns as well, but... Um, Isaac Watts was also a very yeah. important uh, hymn writer. Also, a very important man in the world of logic and logical arguments. Um, he wrote a couple of books that were used for like 
200 years on the basis of like logical arguments and um, talking about them. Uh, two other hymns that he wrote that I really like. He wrote uh, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need, mm. um, which is a pretty famous hymn. And he also wrote the hymn um, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. Nice. Yes. I mean, which... not the situation is not nice, but nice that he wrote the hymn. <laughs> I got what you meant. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yes. we're, which one are we listening to again? Uh, so this hymn is titled from all that dwell below the skies. All that to say, the music that we're going to listen to and discuss was not actually written by Isaac Watts, um, but the words were written by Isaac Watts, and Isaac Watts in the terms of the history of the world is much more important name-wise than old John Hatton. Well, so let's listen to what John Hatton has to offer. So true. Alrighty. Uh, the text, by the way, I'm, I'll read the text before for this one. Um, okay. So it's two verses, so I'll read both verses. So verse one is, From all that dwell below the skies, let the Creator's praise arise. Let the Redeemer's name be sung. Throw every land by every tongue. Verse two is, Eternal are thy mercies, Lord. Eternal truth attends thy word. Thy praise shall sound from shore to shore, till sun shall rise and set no more. Great text. Yeah. Isaac Watts knew how to write some good words. That's true. Alrighty, and let's hear how Ol' Hatton, what he does with that text. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Nice. Classic. Classic. The melody meanders a lot more in this mm-hmm. one. Um, it still it still stays within the range of an octave, right? But it's all over the place. Yeah, there are definitely some more leaps in this melody. Um, mm-hmm. Like the arpeggio, the C major, or C sharp major arpeggio. Um, and whatever... Um, rhythmic movement you do here is generally going to stay in the inner voices so alto and tenor mm-hmm. um, that's just to fill in chords to give a chord progression because honestly you could write whatever chords you wanted to this melody you can make it jazzy you can make it atonal you could do whatever you want um mm-hmm. and the alto and the tenor actually do have somewhat more interesting parts Yes. For this, um, there's a lot more movement in between with the sopranos and the basses kind of just sitting on those chords, right? Mm -hmm. And then letting the altos and tenors kind of move and guide you to the next chord. Mm -hmm. And they can also help the congregation kind of predict where the melody is going to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does some good text painting, too. That's another big thing about hymns that oftentimes can be overlooked, Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, he has this part, the, let the Redeemer's name be sung, right? So on that is when he goes up on the word Redeemer 
from a D flat all the way up an octave to a high D flat, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get that larger swell from the choir on the word name mm-hmm. and just stuff like that that you wouldn't necessarily think of but how the people that write the tunes for these hymns really try and work in you know not just the text but also how does the music represent the text that's true Mm-hmm. i think it's really interesting i could listen and talk about hymns all day long Yeah, and we took, like, a whole year of sacred music, and so um, that and us working at the church, we we did get the opportunity to study hymn music quite a bit, and just church music in general, and it is so fascinating. Like, I've mentioned this when we did our Renaissance series, I am absolutely fascinated with, like, chant and the Mm -hmm. history of church music. Yes. I could literally talk about it for hours. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hymns are no exception. They're just as fun. Just as interesting to see the history behind them, right? Mm-hmm. And how they came to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I've, I've found that people's favorite hymns say a lot about them. That's true. It's true. Thank you, choir director. Thank you. Thank you, choir director. And if anybody ever tells you that their favorite hymn is Soldiers of Christ Arise, <laughs> watch out for that person. That's a good point. It's true. Right. So today we talked about Samuel Sebastian Wesley, but as I was doing research about his life, I learned a little bit about his father, Samuel Wesley, um, and I thought that he was so interesting on his own that we couldn't just skip over him. So, surprise! The next episode is going to be on Samuel Wesley, the father of Samuel Sebastian Wesley, who is also um, regarded as the English Mozart. I'm excited. I don't know Mm -hmm. anything about that guy. Me neither. I didn't spoil anything for myself, so... Hopefully there'll be a lot of good information for us to share with y'all and for everyone to just learn something new that day. Here's hoping. (laughs) Right. So thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Hi-Ho Podcast. Again, my name is Victoria Sundin. And I'm David Westbrook. And if you'd like to keep up with us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at Hi-Ho Podcast. If you want to send us an email with any recommendations on composers we should cover or any observations you've made from the music we listened to today, you can email us at thehihopodcast at gmail.com. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and we will see you in the next episode. Bye! Bye!